It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. It's a pleasure to have with us here on the show, Brittany Harker-Martin. She's an Associate Professor of Leadership, Policy, and Governance at the University of Calgary. However, uh, it may sound a little confusing because we're, we're actually going to be talking with her about a brain research that shows that the arts promote mental health. Now, Brittany is an interdisciplinary thought leader in arts education with a PhD in business strategy. Interesting combination. Her research, her research show focuses on the effects of visual arts process on mental health capacity building in schools through a unique partnership with the Alberta Health Services. And with her expertise of sitting at the intersection of education and business and the arts, it provides Brittany with a unique vantage point for innovative solutions and n- novel research across the sectors. And uh, she's also, as a teacher, her wheelhouse is what she calls the arts-based inquiry, using a variety of strategies from the arts to explore a learning context with kids from kindergarten to grade nine. Brittany, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to have you here. You know, this is a, a really interesting topic uh, for us to be looking at, especially uh, with COVID-19. Uh, the arts are always fascinating. And, you know, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't help but, but uh, think uh, of, of uh, my own experience with the arts, but we'll get into that in a moment because it ties in with, I think, what we're going to be talking about. Now, you know, a, a lot of people have course, because of the, the lockdown, people have turned to the arts, uh, kids to keep them one creative, keep them active. Um, you really uh, promote the idea that the arts can help in, in so many different ways. It's not just a way of, of uh, you know, some keep, keeping, keeping kids active, let's say, or keeping them engaged. Uh, this, is, this is something that it helps in so many ways, makes, makes us better people, makes us better learners, makes us better at learning other things than the art. It, we, I think we all know that, I think music helps with uh, 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 math, if I'm not mistaken, for instance. <laughs> there's some research that shows that, and there's, a, there's definitely a relationship between music and math. If you look at even just the way that notation mm. and, um, you know, the, the way that time is broken down mm-hmm. numerically, mm-hmm. Um, it's just an inherent relationship. And the interesting thing with um, the relationship between the arts and what it can do for humans is actually the other way around. It's not that the arts can do something for us. It's that we are designed to actually use the arts. Our brains are already creative and innovative, and they're just dying to be used in these ways. But in modern society right now, we place a heavy emphasis on um, cognition and problem solving and, um, you know, really doing deep thinking in ways that can be, um, you know, measured on a test or has some kind of output for an essay. And a lot of these processes that we're wired to um, use and that are healthy for our brains are somewhat neglected. Well, it sounds to me like what you're describing is is a recipe for uh, uh, concern, uh, just because it sounds like if we're avoiding what our brains are made to do, <laughs> it doesn't sound like a healthy approach. <laughs> you know, there's not research yet that shows anything like that. That's, that's part of what I'm really interested in mm. as a professor at the University of Calgary, is looking specifically at what this could be doing to our minds. Um, 
However, there is lots of research that shows the benefits. The challenge is right now, a lot of the knowledge that we have on the positive effects of the arts comes in forms of research that's not acceptable by policymakers mm. and or um, decision makers in schools um, and government. So um, often they're looking for big studies that are statistically significant, that are generalizable to the population meaning um, they want to have things that are measurable. And much of the knowledge right now on the impact of the arts and the effects of the arts is more qualitative. And so that's kind of the role that I play. That's why I bring that different interdisciplinary lens. Mm -hmm. I wanted to learn how the world sees the business case for the arts because we, despite what we know, we weren't reaching the right audiences. And so that's why I did my PhD in business strategy mm -hmm. because that's where the innovation research takes place. And I could definitely see that correlation in what you were talking about and why you would, would take that, that direction. It's not, mm. you know, I, I don't think you're, you're unique in that. There are other people that are exploring and tying these things together as well. But yes. again, uh, in terms of what you just described about, you know, the, the, the qualitative and they got to have something that's measurable, it sounds like the same kind of rigid thinking that is going against the idea of bringing in this more creative <laughs> approach to things as well. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting observation. The, the challenge with this is when you have a system that teaches you to sit, think in certain ways, mm. then you see the world in certain ways as mm. well, and you value those things. And so if you've had um, a life that is relatively devoid of the arts experiences that can um, enhance and bring out these positive effects, then it's uh, difficult for you to uh, be an advocate for them, of course, because you're just unaware of them. Or, you know, on the other side of that, there are people who have had negative experiences with the arts where perhaps they've been facilitated wrong or they have, um, you know, had one uh, experience that you know, I, I, I teach art teachers and often there's a story about that one teacher that, um, you know, overemphasized what was wrong with someone's work of art instead of right. And mm. what that did was that made somebody be afraid to use it. Right. So the whole emphasis on product in the arts world over process is something that I think needs to be a bit disrupted, especially when we're using it in the school system to start really looking at what are the benefits of engaging in visual process and or dramatic process, musical process, um, choreographic process over what it is to make a dance or make an, a, a work of art. Um, I think that 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 is underemphasized and that we need to actually disrupt that and start thinking about it in different ways. But the arts are, are, are generally, as a creative process, uh, they are a way of problem solving. Yeah, there's, there's for sure. And, and if you look at um, kind of trending processes like design thinking and, and um, innovation and, and it, the, the kind of process oriented um, trends that are out there right now where people are trying to learn how to basically follow a pattern of cognition to get from uh, problem to solution, the arts absolutely follow the same um, line of thinking. And um, for many artists, they start their work with really big questions, pondering, wondering something. They don't necessarily think what their work of art or their their music or whatever their art form is. They don't think necessarily, I'm going to make this thing that looks like this or sounds like this. They're often exploring and experimenting along the way, trying to find um, that ultimate form to represent the ideas that they have as they're learning.
You know, when you say that, I, I, I immediately think of what's happening right now around the world with COVID-19. Uh, mm-hmm. Scientists right around the planet are working on trying to find uh, a, 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 a vaccine. And I think that's going to require creativity because so far in many instances trying to f- find a vaccine or, or something that combats these viruses, uh, it eludes us in many ways. And it, you know, like the old say, saying goes, you can't, uh, you can't find, uh, with, the sa- with the same thinking, you can't, you can't get a new answer, right, if, if you're running into a problem. So that, to me, thinks, sounds like you need creative thinking to solve problems. Absolutely. And the best researchers in the world are creative thinkers. There's a difference between being a creative person and being an artistic person. Mm. Those two things are definitely interrelated, Mm -hmm. right? But um, many scholars who work on their research have a creative um, mindset and are able to access creative thinking. the thing that I think would be interesting in those scenarios that you just described would be, you know, um, I'm curious to know what would happen if we put some artists at the table <laughs> and actually proposed, you know, the the challenges of the research to them and had them ponder and think about it. Because artists think in different ways. It's creative thinking, but they also just happen to have a whole different set of um, ways to approach challenges and problems and i think the world could use more artists at the table yeah something comes to mind where i've either seen this i don't know it was in a, if it was in a film or if it was in reality somewhere that 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 was in fact you know brought into uh to, to bring in creative thinkers uh, to solve problems and I, if i'm not mistaken i think it worked but um you're because, right i think it's actually a trend yeah. so um the challenge is it's not it's not a big enough trend yet. Mm. People are catching on. Mm. So when we look around, um, I know for myself, when I go to international conferences, it used to be the case that it was, you know, the artists preaching amongst themselves. And uh, now when I go to arts-based conferences, often we'll have people from medicine who are there, people from nursing who are there, people from the sciences who are there. Um, there's, There's definitely a movement that is heading in that direction. In education and in the workplace, there's also pushback against that. Uh, People who don't understand it, people who are discomforted by it, people who um, maybe perhaps feel that the artists are trickling into their space and they don't like it. Um, I've never had as many challenges with some of the grant writing that I've had. Um, I've actually had lots of success with grant writing but with my arts-based and psychology-based research, there's often someone on that committee that just doesn't accept it. And, and that's, um, that is kind of like, I like to say, you know, if you're, if you're so inside the box, it's hard to think outside of it. Mm. But at the same time, we've got to think about how we solve these problems in different ways. You know, a couple of things, uh, come to mind when you you mentioned the word threatened and you mentioned uh, going back to what you're saying about about teachers uh, mm. you know and the you know teachers pointing out the wrong things and and when you say threatened because that's something I was I was wondering about uh, I wrote this down and as I was reading the your article um, I also thought about this as well and I think it's something I I've, I felt before and I'm not sure if that threatening part uh, ties in with this or has makes any sense at all but are the arts 
uh, uncomfortable for some people, thinkers that maybe people haven't been associated with uh, their that cre- the creative side, or maybe they think they're not creative uh, at all. I don't I don't know. Um, is the, are the arts considered more feminine? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I do not have a response for that because I think. That's an interesting question. It would, it, I, I think there needs to be some research on that. And I have not looked specifically at that question. Mm. Um, there's, there are so many cultural connotations with femininity and masculinity, mm-hmm. um, not only in the broader uh, culture, but then um, within subcultures as well. And so that I, I'm going to leave for the experts okay. uh, who study that space because, um, yeah, that is a whole separate question to yeah. unpack, starting with what do you mean by feminine in the first place? <laughs> yeah. But it just, you know, I just wonder because there is that tendency to to uh, feel awkward and we need to get, I think we all need to get more in touch with that feminine side of our personalities or our, our sides of our, our beings. Uh, I think that helps. And, and I don't know why that came to mind, but it just did. So uh, having said that, You've been working in and around this for for over twenty years, and when I saw that, and you know, you're talking about how important the arts are, and we we've seen this in schools before when you know arts start getting dropped uh, mm-hmm. from schools, the, and after school stuff, and other things that kids can do to be creative, and, and we all it always comes back about. There's benefits to this. Why are why are schools uh, you know, eliminating this? Why is this getting eliminated? But I'm going like, okay, the, the planet's been around a long time, and, and people yeah. have been around a long time. This can't just be new. We must have seen this for a millennia. We must know this is, this is there. Yeah. I think in the education system, there's always a big push um, for the decisions that are made to be something that can be um, reduced down to a standardized test. Mm. The arts just don't allow that. And so then it's hard for the evidence to be there. Um, And so for the decision makers who have a position that is based on, um, you know, proving uh, that that you know, their decisions are valid, so to speak, um, then the arts can have historically um, fallen to the wayside, and then they're brought back up to the surface, and then they go back down. There's a shift now in a lot of the arts-based um, education that is starting to recognize that and find new ways to be able to provide that evidence. And that's why I'm really interested in the neuroscience of things because, um, and, and I use psychometrics as well, so ways of, of measuring um perceptions of uh, effects of the arts based on certain criteria. So uh, the evidence base is changing, um, but then there are also just always people who have their own agenda of why or why not the arts should or shouldn't be on the um, docket. Mm. And of course, this all ties in with the idea of, of what we were talking about, and that is the, the, the mental health side of how the arts can help. Uh, mm-hmm. You point out in the article, you know, anxiety and depression, for instance, as a, as a, couple, a couple of those uh, areas that, that it, it shows it can help in. Yeah, for sure. So art therapy has been using um, different forms of arts to address depression and anxiety uh, with success for years. Mm, what I advocate for is actually 
going further out on the continuum of health services to look more at promotion and prevention of mental health issues to begin with. So I am proposing that the brain um, is underutilized in these processes and that we have seen research that shows that there are cognitive rewards, meaning that the body will release positive feeling chemicals like dopamine and anamine and um, serotonin when people engage in the arts. And that's just not happening if you're not, you know, using the arts on a regular basis or if the arts aren't being used in schools. And so I suggest it's not just therapy, that it can also be something where people can learn about their brain and experience a positive effect along the way. Uh, you know, the other thing that you mentioned is, is of course, uh, role-playing and, and those kind of things. So, so theater, for instance. Uh, um, and this ties in with, with what I was talking about earlier. I studied theater at York University. And mm. I can tell you that uh, I, I think that it was one of the best best uh, things that I had go, that I had a, a release for in terms of using that as a therapy for myself. That's interesting. Yeah, I think... That's a common experience for students who um, find theater, especially if they find it at the post-secondary level for the mm. first time. Um, and it's also, you know, I, I was a drama teacher in high school. I, I physically just witnessed time and again how good it is for youth to be able to just have that catharsis, to take mm. on a role that's outside of who they are and mm. try on something different. And at the same time, when those kinds of things take place, it, it goes back to what we were talking about, that whole threatening discomfort mm -hmm. uh, mindset. It can push you outside of your comfort zone a little bit and teach you that it's okay. You're going to survive <laughs> because many of us are um, socialized to think that risk is, uh, and that sense of uncertainty is too dangerous and that's something to avoid. But the arts actually embrace that, push you into that discomfort and help you relate to it in a way that I think teaches people self-regulation skills. You know, you just touched, on, I think, on a really interesting point there when you talked about taking risks and, and theater and, and students that, that uh, take on those roles and for people that are, are threatened by all of that. And yet, if you want to talk going back to the business world, entrepreneurs are some of the biggest risk takers there are. So, you know, they, they have to be comfortable with that side of, of things. So risk taking should be something that, that people are exposed to and should uh, use as a way to not be afraid of taking risks. Absolutely. And, and um, for the successful entrepreneurs that I know, and I'm actually quite immersed in the entrepreneurial world, we have an amazing Hunter Hub for Entrepreneurship at the mm. University of Calgary and just really good entrepreneurial um, connections like our Creative Destru Destruction Lab. Um, with those people, they, the successful entrepreneurs are good at taking calculated risks. Mm -hmm. So they learn how to... Um, uh, recognize an opportunity mm -hmm. and then how to ha uh, develop a sense for whether or not that risk is worth going for. Yeah. And sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. For the really good entrepreneurs, they actually learn how to bounce back from failure in a way that they're resilient to yep. it 
And it's not life destroying if they've made right. the wrong choice because they're willing to go in again right. and to do it again because it's actually a learning curve. Right. And that's the point that I try to make with infusing more of the arts into the school system is that you need to find a comfort with being willing to fail because right now, much of what we're doing with standardized testing is like giving kind of a baseline evaluation of where your intelligence at is at based on how well you write a test. It's garbage. Right. And and I think that it's also, you know, when you're talking about threats, that's more threatening than anything. And then at the end of the day, what it does is it weeds out very successful people, you know, right. even in, in, in admissions exams. Um, you know, a lot of business schools will use the GMAT, for example. Uh, that kind of test can really weed out some of the most creative people. And then at the end of the day, you don't have innovative, creative solutions happening. Right. Our guest is Brittany Harker-Martin. She's an associate professor at the University of Calgary. And we are talking about uh, brain research showing that the arts promote mental health. We had, a, I think, a fascinating conversation. Uh, it's great talking with, with Brittany. Brittany, you just mentioned a couple of things that I was thinking about earlier as well and about success and about the tests and it comes back to this thinking this rigid thinking that we are put into uh, or tried to be put into even in even in our, our daily choice of, of trying to find an employment and and trying to to do that uh, and yet our brains want to have this creative outlet they need a way of being creative somehow and when we're put into the, the, the idea of writing tests or so showing success at school, and as you just said, some of these things eliminate some of the greatest uh, creative thinkers and don't encourage them. And yet, look at, I think, some of the, the most famous uh, artists and some of the most cr brilliant thinkers that we've had. Uh, some of them did very poorly at school. And, and intelligence and their, their ability to, to be problem solvers or, or people that, that can and uh, move forward and 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 have something to contribute to society in many great ways uh, haven't had or needed that that uh, formal education to do this yeah absolutely and and of course that depends on their context and and what their actual education was mm -hmm. uh, I think there are many examples of people who are successful despite their schooling environments. Mm. Um, however, the opposite is also true that there are schools that are amazing. There are teachers that are yep. amazing. Absolutely. There are programs that are amazing um, that have helped students uh, develop and learn those things early. So, yeah, you know, I want to make sure I'm not, I'm definitely <laughs> not the anti-school person <laughs> as a teacher. I love school. I love teachers. They are amazing and doing an amazing, incredible job right now, especially in this environment. One thing that we're seeing, though, is that in this environment where things are being distilled down to an online environment, some of the arts teachers are being marginalized and their positions are being, um, you know, reallocated to the core subjects. And I think that that is a huge mistake. I think that that is um, short-sighted. And I think that that is going to ultimately disadvantage those students who aren't getting an arts-rich life anymore. So mm. um, in my work, for example, I am the teacher of the art teachers at the University of Calgary. And we have a course called Integrating the Arts that I um, flipped easy pivot to put it online. Um, many of my uh, arts educator friends and colleagues were watching with interest to see how that would turn out. And um, what happened was the students were challenged to create art in their homes during self-isolation without any um, 
supplies. They couldn't go to the store at the time when we originally pivoted. And so they uh, were making works of art that were based on their observations of what happens in a pandemic with really mm. deep questions like, um, you know, what else is contagious in a right. pandemic? Right. Um, you know, what power structures emerge? I mean, talk about some interesting material that they had just based on looking at social media. And their works of art um, captured what was going on in society in a way that no one could have written an essay about it. Hmm. And I think that that kind of thinking right now is more important than ever. Right. That's great. One of the things your article also touches on is mindfulness. And of course, that's something we hear about a lot in terms of, uh, of use as a therapy for mindfulness, being present. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so mindfulness, the most important thing to me in mindfulness is that it's about being aware and being conscious of your um, state of mind mm -hmm. without having any kind of um, self-talk involved or judgment of what that state of mind is. And in the arts world, um, I've witnessed time and again how people can shift their mindset from, from one form of focus to another. So the visual art exercises that I use, I call them brain smoothies um, <laughs> because I use them as a daily exercise, just like a smoothie, you know, makes your body healthy. A brain mm. smoothie in art actually helps your mind. And in that process of using that, have seen people shift from um, being very frenetic in their approach to the work, um, fast, uh, quick um, brushstrokes to slowing down and actually being able to just be in that moment. And then coming out of that experience have talked about that. So the arts have a, a tremendous power for teaching people how your mind can shift and unpacking that. Okay. Uh, Brittany, any, any uh, thing, we're just going to wrap up here. Uh, anything else you, you want to mention just before we, we finish up? Well, I hope that people who are listening um, hear strongly that the arts can be something that is looked at right now that is under threat and that they hear that if they don't see enough of the arts in their children's education and or in their workplace, that it's important to be an advocate for that because there are mental health benefits uh, from doing that. And there can also be, I think, mental health um, detriments if you're not doing that. So mm. think about being an arts advocate. We all need it. That is Brittany Harker-Martin. She is an associate professor uh, in leadership, policy, and governance at the University of Calgary. It's been a pleasure to have her on the program. That is this part of the program, so uh, please don't go away, because we will be right back with more right here on Moment of Truth right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. It is a pleasure to have with us here on the show Ellie Weinstein, a documentarian, and Galen Watts. He's an academic. Together, they have worked on a, a documentary, Hashtag Blessed. And uh, it is a pleasure to have them here to talk about this. Of course, I had a, a chance to watch this documentary, and which tells uh, the story of an Allen uh, Evangelical Church, C3. 
as it is called. Some of you may be familiar with it. It has set up more than 500 houses of youth-targeted worship worldwide. Toronto alone has multiple locations, led, as you learn uh, actually in the film, as you're watching it, they actually open one up uh, throughout the process, uh, led by their ripped jeans-wearing pastor, Sam, uh, who speaks to a generation looking for community in an age defined by the lonely effects of social media. An interesting way to set it up, but certainly tying in with uh, what you see uh, 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 portrayed in the film. And certainly, uh, you know, there was a couple of interesting, a lot of interesting comments uh, uh, in the film that that you get to see and hear. Um, First, Ali and Galen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks. It's our pleasure. So, uh, documentarian and academic uh, get together to put this together. How did that come about? Well, um, I had been researching the church for a little while. I I read about it in the newspaper a couple years ago and Mm. was really blown away to learn about this place that Mm. was so successful with young people in downtown Toronto. Um, But being an evangelical church, which really has these sort of like traditional Christian values. And so um, I, along with my producer, Cornelia Principe, thought it would be a really interesting documentary uh, just to sort of like get an inside look at what's happening there and how they're so successful. So I think it was sort of in pretty early stages while we were just doing research, like background research, trying to figure out more about where the church comes from and um, just sort of learn a bit more that we we kind of stumbled upon Galen because he had been studying the church for his PhD thesis mm. here in Toronto for at least a year at that point or something mm. like that. And so I think initially it was just sort of like reaching out to him to kind of be like, he's been working on this. We may as well learn something right. from what right. he's already been studying and sort of like chat with him and then it sort of evolved from there in in later stages in terms of actually like involving him more in the actual film on camera to kind of give commentary on what he what he learned while he was studying the church all right so that sounds pretty interesting right there well let's let's come back to that in a moment about what you did learn but uh galen uh when you were approached on this let's talk about that but also why were you why were you looking at this church Sure. Yeah. So, um, it's it's kind of funny. I, I I had been doing research on C3 Toronto for almost a year when Ali approached me. But actually, um, before that, I mean, I had for for years I had been researching uh, more broadly just contemporary spirituality. So mm. different forms of sort of spiritual expression in uh, in Canada um, more broadly and and. So I, I actually, I, I came at C3 from a somewhat um, peculiar background. I, I was more sort of, I spent, I did a master's uh, a few years before that, uh, researching the spiritual but not religious, uh, which is of course a growing phenomenon among millennials. And then it was only from uh, doing that research that I ended up becoming interested in uh well, charismatic Christians or, or neo-Pentecostals, mm. like the ones you find at uh, and at C3 mm. Toronto. And so uh, my choice to end up sort of expanding my research scope to include C3 Toronto was a decision to sort of move from, uh, you know, first just focusing on spiritual but not religious young people, and then trying to sort of compare and think about the similarities and differences between those millennials and the kinds of millennials that you find uh, in well, at C3 Toronto, charismatic Christians. Mm-hmm. And so 
Uh, I, I did a, a year of field work at C3 Toronto, and I was I was at the same time doing field work at two other actually sites, um, which of course you know aren't our topics in in the film, but but nevertheless were part of my research. And uh, and so you know it, it was kind of funny. I mean, when Ali came uh, uh, and approached me and asked me about uh, you know what I was doing at C3 Toronto, in some ways I had reservations because this was it was just one chunk of a much larger research project, but it was also a really useful opportunity for me to talk about my research and 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 also get ideas from her, which uh, in the end I, I'm I'm really grateful for. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. You, you mentioned a couple of things there that I I, th I think are interesting that tie in well with well, what we see in the film as we we get deeper and deeper into uh, you know this this church and why it's there, what its purpose is, and 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 it's who it's targeting kind of things. Uh, I was kind of interested to learn about the millennials and they and a lot of them feeling like they're living in this kind of like a spiritually lacking kind of a void environment with mm -hmm. with everything that they are are seeing and doing these days i found that really interesting yeah i i think i think it's a you know it, it's a it's a pretty widespread feeling mm. and i think it's particularly widespread in very urban places um where you know sort of Modern societies have kind of at the, they're at their forefront, right? Um, when, when we think about, you know, the most sort of modern societies, usually they're in very big metropolises like Toronto, for instance. And I think among quite uh, a number, of course, not everyone, but quite a, a large number of, of millennials, there is a sort of kind of malaise, a, a sense of maybe something missing mm -hmm. that, that that previous generations had, um, but. But for whatever reason, technology, you know, the, the fast pace of life um, uh, and maybe other reasons, it's our generation just doesn't have it. Mm -hmm. I think also even, I mean, the film doesn't really get into this, but like even just sort of like the gig economy, like the way that our generation is sort of working piecemeal freelance a lot of the time. And I think we're just working all the time too, except for very in a very disjointed way, often from home, you know, pre-pandemic <laughs> and feeling a bit siloed as well um, in, in many aspects of our lives. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. And, and thanks for those comments. I, I I guess why I found it interesting is because of exactly what you guys said, uh, it, the gig economy as well as this this environment of, of being uh, bombarded with social media. We're always looking at our, our phones. We're always involved with all of this stuff and looking at it. And we don't get to hear about this. You know, we, I, honestly, it had kind of gone right over my head that this was missing. But when I saw that, I went, yeah, this makes a whole lot of sense to me now. Hadn't yeah, thought about that before. So I, I guess that's why I'm, I'm you know, sort of uh, wanted to make that point. Yeah, no, I, I think I know what you mean. I think that, um, I mean, I'm a millennial. Mm -hmm. I'm, I guess, sort of like in the slightly upper <laughs> realm of millennial. Like, I'm in my mid-30s now. But um, I I think I've been very interested in sort of the theme of, of loneliness mm. for a long, long time. Like, in some of the other films I've worked on and... Um, it's something that I haven't even like sat down and really thought that clearly about, but I've always been drawn to, I think in different ways. And I think it is because 
it's something that myself and my my peers sort of live with mm. uh, in our daily lives, and we don't spend a lot of time thinking about that. And we often think that we're we are more connected than ever. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I read a very interesting New Yorker article right as the pandemic was starting, which was talking about loneliness because it was something that we were all feeling mm. so much. I think at the beginning of quarantine, and it sort of made this point that before quarantine started, like just in recent years, we have been at peak loneliness as a species just mm. because um, of the way that our societies have been moving. And, and yeah, just we were also disconnected physically, although we're connected online. From the very beginning of the film, what we mm -hmm. see is uh, a, a very uh, together presentation of this church. Uh, very slick. I mean, th it looks looks great i mean you know when you see the pictures of the stage performance with the lights yeah. and the sound system it's going like what this this is yeah. like super cool uh you know uh it's a great performance a great presentation tying right in again to that that uh, mentality of, of the millennials as they're targeting them um and so uh and and i really love the way as they're going out looking for a new location i think that the one technician guy they were talking to he he addresses it and i forget the exact words he uses but uh, holy Sam, rock concert holy rock concert. yeah <laughs> we could have called the film that i guess <laughs> right. it would have been a good title <laughs> yeah and and i thought yeah that's a great way to describe this um so you we've been talking about it a little bit but can we go back to talk about uh, the, the church itself, you know, because it started, I believe, in, in Australia. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it started in um, 1980 in Australia um, by a couple there named Chris and Phil Pringle, um, who then started church planting, as it's called, um, churches all around the world. And I think if I'm correct, Galen, um, it sort of picked up pace in the early 2000s, more globally. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's right, and and I and and really, it's it's. I mean, they're they're of course one of many uh, church movements that are that have sort of you know had humble beginnings and then grown uh, just kind of exponentially over the past few decades. Um, I mean, it, actually, C three is not even the biggest um, um, movement out of. Uh, out of Australia, that would be Hillsong, which of course a lot of people know because uh, Justin Bieber, for instance, is is quite closely connected to it. Um, so these, you know, C3 is just one of many um, evangelical movements that that begin, and then they they just they have kind of ambitions of global domination. Um, you know, not to put it in sort of dark terms, but but in effect, their goal is to try and bring, uh, uh, you know, put a C3 church in every single city in the world. That would be their, that's their aim. So, so um, Ali, you mentioned about, you know, your sort of, uh, you've been sort of focused on loneliness to some degree in some of the other work that you've done. You were both researching this church for, uh, I guess, because of what it was doing. And, and the way you, you, Galen, you were just describing it. Uh, it, when you look at this, it, it really, in, our, in, our, in this day and age uh, of being so connected uh, with having uh, social media uh, at our fingertips and, and, and all of these things, the church really has, it looks like, um, it, it has used a lot of the, the very uh, current business practices to, mm -hmm. to grow and, and develop itself. Uh, to try and reach into a spiritual void that a lot of the millennials are feeling. Um, mm -hmm. And 
you know, you, you get a sense of that from, from watching this. I guess the other thing I see when I watch this as well, you know, it, it's um, when you see everyone getting involved, singing along with the lyrics of, of the group, um, their hands up in the air. It, it really gives me a sense of what, uh, you know, uh, some years ago, um, someone said, let's go to this uh, church service. It was... Um, it was a black church service. They said, just to go see, it's really cool. And um, I have to admit, it kind of reminds me of that. Uh, everybody's mm -hmm. singing, everybody's standing up, chanting, you know, uh, arms up in the air, um, you know, eyes closed and praising. And, and, and it, it looked a lot like that to me. Yeah, I think, I think that that's not entirely uh, coincidental. I mean, in some respects, C3 has, a, has its sort of origins, origins in Pentecostalism, mm. which uh, really began, I think, in the, you know, most scholars trace it to sort of the black community uh, in the early 20th century mm. of, of the U.S. And so, um, and so it has that very kind of, you know, the, those historical origins, and, and it comes out of that, of course, uh, today, it's Pentecostalism is a is a it's a widespread worldwide movement which mm -hmm. you find all around the world and in Latin America and and, and Africa. But uh, nevertheless, it it you know we can trace it back and it has very close ties to the Black Church in the U.S. Mm. Mm -hmm. My guests are Ali Weinstein, a documentarian, as well as Galen Watts, an academic who has been searching uh, and started to to look at the, the church C3 as part of his PhD. Was that, uh, Galen, what you were looking at for? That's right, yes. And, and right. If you and I, in, in fact, I've just, uh, I've just finished it. <laughs> good, good. I was just going to ask <laughs> if you have you completed that yet. So, well, congratulations. How did it go? It went well, actually. Right. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I just defended it. And so I'm in the process of sort of writing it up. And uh, C3 was... As I was saying in my, you know, earlier, that uh, it, it featured as, as one of three case studies. So, mm. you know, I've sort of written up the whole the whole thing and um, trying to give a, a much a comprehensive picture of of spiritual expression among uh, young people in North America. Right. So uh, I, I, we're speaking with Ali and, and Galen about uh, their collaboration on, on a film called Hashtag uh, Blessed. It's going to be actually world uh, uh, broad, uh, broadcast premiere on CBC Docs on July 18th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And um, I, I, it says actually Eastern and Pacific Time at 9 p.m. So, uh, it, you know, you can catch it there. But I'm just wondering, uh, guys, where else can people maybe be able to see this in the future? Well, that's a really good question. We just actually, we made two versions of the film, ah. like a longer feature length version, which just had its premiere at Hot Docs okay, Film great. Festival, yeah. which um, was online this year, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, this premiere on CBC will be a shorter version of the film. It's 44 minutes. Mm. Um, but uh, we're still sort of in the process of getting wider distribution. I mean, right. we would love to, you know, show it outside of Canada, but mm. um, it's also new. We only finished it during the pandemic, so you'll have to, I don't know, stay tuned <laughs> to see where else it goes. Okay. Uh, now, it looked like the, you know, when you, I, I'm guessing, obviously, you had to approach the church, you had to approach the people uh, to mm. get the uh, the okay to, to document this and, and things, and it looked like they were very much in favor of allowing you to, uh, to be involved, to see things, to be part of the, the process. Yeah, they were. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it was a surprise to me, to be honest, because as an outsider, as someone who's not a Christian, um, I really didn't think that mm. they would necessarily be very open to the mm. idea of having me come and document the church. But um, Pastor Sam, who's the head pastor of C3 Toronto, 
seemed pretty open from the beginning. And I mean, you know, we told him, my producer and I told him that we wanted to pitch this to CBC. We mm -hmm. thought they would be interested in the story. And, you know, I'm sure as an evangelical Christian, someone who's, you know, trying to spread the word <laughs> of, of, you know, the Bible right. as they see it um, to the world. I think that he definitely saw that as an opportunity to spread his message farther. So nice. um, I guess that's why he was so open from the beginning. And I also did assure him that um, my take on everything was trying to be very neutral. Like, though I'm not a Christian myself, mm -hmm. I wasn't setting out to create an expose of the church, mm -hmm. um, which I think is very true. I think if you watch the film, you can tell that it's not meant to be like some kind of takedown of their right. ideas. Right. Um, at the same time, like I was very clear with him that I wasn't trying to make an ad for them. I would have had no reason to do that. Um, but really, I just wanted to kind of like show what I saw as a super interesting phenomenon happening right here in my city and mm -hmm. just kind of like get a little bit behind the scenes and see how they operate, see how what they're doing is working amongst um, their their followers. And, and I think more than anything else, um, I mean, it's interesting. Sometimes when you make a film, I'm finding with more and more experience that sometimes like the true themes of the film only really become visible to, to me, the filmmaker at the very end, <laughs> like, mm. <laughs> you know, when you're kind of wrapping up your edit and you're like, Oh, that's what this was about the whole time. And I think at the end of the day, the film, while it's all set at C3, I actually don't really think it's a film about C3 per se. Mm. Like I think it's about um, this generation of young people in the city who find this particular place so attractive and what they're searching for in their lives that they might not be getting elsewhere mm. in society. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a really good way to describe it. Uh, and yeah. uh, we won't give any of that away because we want people to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but, thanks. But, but, but really, okay. there is some really interesting takes that I didn't see coming. Uh, uh -huh. But you explore uh, uh, specifically a couple of people's lives involved with the church, how they got involved, let's just put it that way, uh, and, and then the relationships, uh, relationship of, of one particular couple that is very much involved with, with the church and, and their relationship. I found mm -hmm. it really interesting, of course, in terms of, uh, of, of, of those relationships and what you see not only with themselves uh, personally, uh, between themselves, but also with them and their and that church, and we see yeah. how that that uh, relationship changes uh, for some people, and and I thought that was really interesting, and um, you know I, I could say more, but I don't want, I don't want to give any more away. I want people to watch this and, and come away with their own sense. But um, mm -hmm. it, to me, as you say, I think it really does uh, speak to the generation uh, about yeah. how they're feeling, how they're thinking. And what they're searching for. Uh, and we explore that as well with these people. Well, good. I'm glad you feel that way. And yeah, I mean, I think one of the goals in, because obviously I, I talked to so many different people mm. who, who went to the church, as did Galen for his research, um, and heard so many different stories, many of which overlapped with each other. But uh, I think the goal in sort of selecting the stories to follow was to try to find um you know, just like people who were at maybe like different stages in their sort of journey, mm. so to speak, with mm -hmm. the church. Um, different, you know, some like one person has just started going and is really throwing himself into it. And then, well, as you said, I won't give too much away, but they're all, they're all at different stages of <laughs> yeah. their journey. And, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, and and congratulations to both of you for, for on this film. Um, but also I think that... I, 
I think you really picked some good people to to uh, to represent what you were looking for and try to get out of the film. I think they really explained themselves in a very clear and intelligent way uh, in in terms of everything that they were experienced, so that that came out to the audience as you're watching this as well. Well, it's great I, to hear. I think that's that's true. Uh, and and one thing I, I would add, um, just to sort of maybe belabor a point that uh, Ali made earlier, which is that I, you know, I, I've obviously heard from people who have, have uh, watched the film and, and, you know, there's been different re responses and reactions, but uh, I think one, maybe uh, one thing that I, I've sort of, a thought that's come to mind listening to people uh, offer their, uh, their thoughts is that I think if you watch the film and you see these characters and you just think, well, these people represent the church, Right. Um, in a sense, you might be sort of um, taking a little bit of a, of a too narrow view. In a sense, as we've been talking about, I think these young people, in many respects, re represent a generation. They're, they don't just represent the church. They represent all of us, whether we are tied to C3 Toronto or we, we've never heard of it before. Mm. Um, in a sense, they speak, their stories don't just speak to, to C3. They do speak to much larger issues and, and realities than um than the c3 uh world yeah nicely said i think that's true i think that that uh ali as you said and, and galen as you were just pointing out it, it speaks to the generation at the end of this film that's what you you start to take away from this that uh mm -hmm. yes the, the church was sort of the, the the catalyst for the film to use but when when you see when you start to see the people's lives and you start to hear from them uh, and explore that side of it, it, it does go much deeper and it does speak to some, some things much larger than uh, than just the, this what's going on with the church and and what's what it's doing. Yeah. So I, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And and I, <laughs> and I and I and to be completely honest, I I think that some people have sort of watched the film wanting it to be a takedown or wanting it to mm. be, you know, sort of thinking, well, this is really just for me to be able to judge for myself whether I'm going to like this church at the end of this movie or not. And, uh, and of course, that's one approach to watching the film. There's nothing wrong with that. But, mm -hmm. but I think it, would, it limits what you can learn from it uh, yeah. if you take that approach. All right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so now I want to ask you guys, when you got together uh, mm -hmm. and started talking about uh, potentially working together on this, what did you learn from each other about about uh, when you start to compare notes and start to compare uh, your experiences with the people and the, and what you were learning? Uh, I, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a good question. It's also difficult to answer because I just feel like I learned so much from Galen, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> like, I mean, it was also really nice because I do think that... Um, we had like a little bit of a, you know, similar experience, just, I mean, how many people go to that church for a good year of their lives, like in a very religious way mm. um, for the sole purpose of like studying it. And that's something that he and I hmm. both had um, like that we both shared. That's quite a unique experience. And mm. so it was definitely like really nice to be able to share our perspectives and what we saw and, um, I mean, Galen just also like as an academic, uh, there were so many things that I would feel or experience there. And then I would talk about that with Galen and he'd be able to give me like so much wider context mm. for the, and like really validate some <laughs> of the things that I was thinking about there um, by telling me like how that came to be within the history of, of Pentecostal, like Neo-Pentecostal right. movement um, or, or whatever it was. And, and so, yeah, I learned tons from Galen, but I would say, Probably the primary thing um, was that 
my focus at the very beginning of all of this was like I mentioned before on sort of the young people going to this church and like what they were looking for and what Mm -hmm. this was fulfilling. And then as with any topic, you go into it, you learn about it, you're immersed in it for over a year. And it's, it's such a rich and complex topic. There's so many things happening at church, so many, you know, people and stories that you meet and you, you get lost in the thick of it. Um, which is the case in like so many, you know, creative projects. And I really found that just sort of being able to talk to Galen throughout the process and um, hear about his primary interest, which I think was very close to what I kind of set out to do at the beginning and really focus on a very non-judgmental kind of take on what's happening here that's looking at the bigger picture and not so much at like all these specifics that people could take political issue with or whatever. Um, that just really kept me grounded. It really helped to like keep me kind of like focusing on that bigger picture and taking a more balanced view as well. If mm. I don't know, I don't know if you mm. want to take that credit, Galen, but that, I really felt that that was like <laughs> <laughs> a great help to me and just sort of staying focused. Take it, uh, take it, Galen. Take it. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I gained a lot, uh, really from from the collaboration with Ali, and and honestly, more than anything, from the many conversations that we shared, we were. Uh, I, I actually did all of my field work over 2018, where, and it was only at the end of that year that Ali approached me. But over 2019, when she was really filming and and um, and I was writing my thesis, we were getting together quite a lot to have conversations. And and anyone who's had the experience of doing research, um, you know, with the with the community. Uh, especially a community that in, in some respects, you know, is filled with people that are very similar to you, to the, to the research themselves, which of course, Ali and I, you know, we're both millennials, we both grew up in Toronto, so this was very close to home. Mm. Um, it, it can be a very, at times, a very strange experience, um, and, and, and even a lonely experience, to be completely honest. It was really wonderful to have Ali uh, there to, to sort of discuss with and, 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 and you know, to be able to share uh, our, our feelings and and what you were going through just as as both people that were interested in studying this, but also make sense of, you know, in some sense, how we were implicated in what was going on and how it, how it related to our experiences. So, mm-hmm. um, so I think, it, you know, I, I, I was, I'm unbelievably grateful to have been a part mm-hmm. of this, not just because I'm proud of the end product, but because I think it really deepened both my scholarship as well as, you know, my, my, my own sense of, of self and, and it helped me through what was at times not an entirely easy process. That's really nice to hear. I did have to convince Galen a little bit at the beginning to take part. So, it was <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really glad that it was that positive in the end. <laughs> well, I think that's uh, everything that you guys have been describing and talking about in terms of hashtag blessed, which is going to be uh, having its world uh, broadcast premiere on CBC docs, uh, POV July 18th at 9 PM Eastern and uh, uh, Pacific time. Uh, you can get to see, uh, you know, look at the film from the perspectives you've been hearing today from, from the two of them, and I think you'll come away with a, with a, a really uh, fascinating look at what's going on, at not only with, with uh, this church, but how it represents uh, the, this millennial generation and what they're thinking, what they're going through, what they're looking for. You know, I remember at some point in this film, there was a line that, and it, I think it ties in really well with what we're talking about here and what you've been saying, uh, Ali, about how and what this this really was about, um, even though the church was the focus for this. And I, I think mm-hmm. it, there was this line that this, and I'm sorry, I don't know who it was, but the person said, 
this world doesn't hold an answer for me or something like that mm. you know this- i think it might be yeah i think it might have been conan the person mm-hmm. who's new to the church i think yeah. he was saying like he tried to he grew up religious he, yep. he sort of left uh religion because he felt like he didn't believe in god and mm-hmm. he he tried to throw himself into other sort of like subcultures or, or i don't even know what subcultures but just sort of like tried to find meaning in other in other um activities and and realized that he just didn't feel there was meaning well, uh, on, uh, on this earth for on us. This earth, that's really. right. That's right. On mm-hmm. this earth. And that's what I, I kind of think that ties in with what, you know, uh, on the l- bigger picture. I thought that mm-hmm. was a really interesting line, uh, yeah. you know, in terms of going inside the mind of, of this particular person, but also in, a, in the broader picture about yeah, what, totally. what, what we're trying to find yeah. in terms of answers. I mean, if I could add just a, a little bit of context, which will sort of connect to to some of the things Ali said actually at the outset. In some ways, if you think about the millennial generation, um, not only are they, you know, are we, as it were, facing um, difficult economic circumstances, I mean, the pandemic has just kind of added insult mm-hmm. to injury in mm-hmm. many respects. And, and, and as Ali was saying, you know, we, we're so focused on just trying to keep our heads above water in many respects. Mm. Um, and, and, at the sa- and so there's unbelievable stress. And at the same time, of course, those sort of, those frameworks of meaning, uh, often which were, were religious, which previous generations um, had, and, 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 and let's be honest, you know, took for granted and didn't really have a choice in, in many respects. But nevertheless, they were there. And I think, you know, society secularized, um, lots of good stuff's happened, but, but at the same time, there is a sense um, that, that, that without those frameworks of meaning, you know, how do you face these difficulties? How do you go through the burdens that we're, that we're being faced with? Um, how do we make sense of it, right? And, and in some respects, I think that's a sort of a theme that, um, that's there in the background throughout the whole film. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. But thank you both for participating in the show uh, with us today and for bringing this, uh, this film for us to see, which again, uh, hashtag blessed, it's going to have its world uh, broadcast premiere on CBC Docs uh, POV July 18th, 9 p.m., both Eastern and Pacific time. So you can catch it there. And uh, I guess the guys, they, they can check it out online uh, if they want to find out more information. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Notice Pictures is the name of the pr- production company, and they mm-hmm. have, yeah, if you want to follow them on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, there's more info there. <laughs> All right. And uh, so Ali Weinstein, a documentarian, and a Galen Watts uh, got together. He's an academic working on his PhD. They got together and, pre- and, and put this together. Hashtag blessed, as I mentioned. Uh, you can see it, as I say, on a CBC Docs coming up on July 18th. Uh, for lack of a better term, I'm just going to say uh, it, it's, a, it's a pretty cool Holy Rock concert. So uh, we'll just leave it <laughs> as it was said in the film. Thank so. you so much, David. Really <laughs> You're very welcome. You. Thank you both yeah, for joining us. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye. It's been a pleasure having them on the show, and it's been a pleasure having you listen to our show every day. I'm David Moses, and uh, you can catch us again tomorrow right here on Moment of Truth and Element FM. See you then. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.